Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into Clojure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about Clojure and GraphQL at Walmart with Howard Lewis Ship, the creator of Aviso Pretty and core maintainer of Lucinia. Welcome to the show, Howard. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Great. Uh, it's, it's good to have you have you on here. Um, Walmart's been putting out a ton of uh, really interesting open source code in the last couple of years, so interested to kind of hear hear all about it. Um, but maybe first you could uh, sort of describe what Walmart Labs is, its relationship to Walmart, um, how that kind of, what's going on with that? Uh, Walmart Labs is essentially just a way of saying Walmart's global e-commerce division. So it's the part of Walmart that's, that's responsible for the Walmart desktop app and the iOS and Android apps. So you know, at Walmart, there's a big division between in-store, which is run out of Beaverton, and Walmart GEC or Walmart Labs, which is based out of San Bruno and Sunnyvale primarily, but has a few satellite offices like the one here in Portland. All oh, right, you're in Portland. I, I thought it was all in San Francisco area. No, that's one of the cool things. Um, you know, uh, I'm on a team uh, that gets to work completely remote. So my boss is here in Portland. He never comes to the office. And then everyone else is scattered across the country. Oh, very nice. Uh, and so Walmart Labs is uh, reasonably well known in the Clojure community for being a, a big user of Clojure, at least in in some some areas. So can you give us like a bit of a bit of a rundown on what Clojure is used for at Walmart Labs? Yeah, I, our primary thing that we do at Clojure is we handle this incoming feed of receipts. So if you go into a Walmart and you buy something, you know, you get your receipt, but that receipt's also transmitted electronically, you know, to the back of the store and then up here to Walmart. And when you realize there's about 5,000 Walmarts across the US and they're all sending these things to us, that adds up pretty quickly. That's about 500 receipts per second peak during a normal day. So that's a lot of stuff to get. That flows into our systems and goes through a couple of queues and eventually comes to rest inside Cassandra. And uh, this is actually very cool because before our team did this, that data was there, but it could take a little while for it to hit the systems of record and be available. And now it's usually available faster than people can bring it up on their phones to to, to check the receipt after checking out. <laughs> so um, that made a big difference. And there's uh, things inside Walmart that are now built on that. I mean, we do some fraud detection based on that. We do uh, Savings Catcher, which is a very popular program that uh, checks to see if the prices of things you've bought has dropped and will actually get you a credit based on that. And more importantly, we provide that data via GraphQL back to the Android and iOS and now the desktop uh, clients. So we expose all that data, both the receipt data that we store in our Cassandra database and the online information that's stored in an entirely different system. And we sort of sift that all together with the GraphQL and, and make it available to the phone and the desktop. Nice. And our entire stack, top to bottom, is, is Clojure. Great. So that's a pretty important piece of machinery there, relying on Clojure. Well, I'm not going to disagree with you. <laughs> so how did Clojure come to Walmart Labs? It's not, you know, Clojure is still seen by many people in the enterprises being perhaps a little bit risky or uh, not the, the default choice um, if you're on the JVM. So kind of how, how did that decision end up being made? Uh, that's actually kind of uh, interesting. That predates me being at Walmart by several years. The person who hired me into Walmart was uh, Anthony Markar. And so he and his uh, business partner, I think was Stuart Argue, 
I'm, I'm sorry, I've actually met him once. They had been working on a product that could sit in between a cash register and the printer for the cash register and capture what was printed as a way to capture electronic receipt data. So they had been shopping this idea around. And, and at the kind of the 11th hour, Walmart bought them and said, okay, we're just going to do this for our systems. And we don't need to put a box in between the POS and the receipt printer. We can actually capture that data. Now, let's go do this thing. We want that receipt data live. So Anthony was very much like, hey, you know, this closure language looks pretty cool. Uh, we're going to do it in that. And uh, the management at the time said, whatever, just do it. I think maybe they didn't think it was ever actually going to work. So they didn't care what technology Anthony failed in. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as it was, because uh, of Anthony and the, and the other developers who were working on this and because of closure and because perhaps a bit of luck, yeah, it all came together and turned into this like very fast, stable system that we've been building on ever since. Great. Uh, that's a really interesting story. Uh, so diving into sort of this receipt system sort of at a bit more granular level, I think you guys are quite heavy users of component uh, from what I've sort of seen written about. Can you talk a little bit about how you use that? And it seems like you're generally maybe one of the heavier users of it, at least in terms of number of components you end up with. Uh, absolutely. And the thing about component is its introduction into the system sort of, again, predates me. It was actually done by Stuart Sierra when he was a consultant on this project. So in some ways, and I didn't know this till I came on at Walmart, component was effectively written for Walmart ah. uh, because component represented the third attempt to organize a giant code base where the first two had issues because it wasn't clear, you know, what was data and what was dependencies and how to build it all. And, and component added the necessary bit of structure that we really like. So, um, and I, I, prior to coming on at Walmart, I had already drunken the, um, the, the component uh, Kool-Aid. I was using it heavily <laughs> on the consulting work I was doing at Aviso. So I was thrilled to come here and use component. And then I was doubly thrilled to find out that Stuart had written it while he was, while he was here. So yes, so you know we have fairly large systems where, uh, in many cases, we have dozens or hundreds of individual components because we're talking to a lot of systems. You might find that we have an API for accessing border data, and that's like you know one component that accesses the client that's built on top of a HTTP client that does the actual communication, and all these things sort of fit together inside component. Our structure got so big and our configuration got so big that we did the second thing called schematic, which is uh, sort of a layer of doing configuration and intra-component dependencies all in one great big Eden file. So that was another thing that we we published uh, as open source um, oh, a few months back. Yeah. Uh, I really like component. I think it has just the right balance of um, pragmatism. Uh, and concision versus some of the other systems I, I, I've looked at where all of a sudden I'm feeling like there's global variables in there. They're hidden from us, but, but they're there. I really like the fact that there's nothing global. Everything um, is a component that we can throw together. We can build systems. We can override individual pieces very easily because it's just a map. Use these in testing and then pull them apart, discard them, shut them down, reuse them, whatever we want. So that just really works well for me. 
Um, the, the whole mental model of what components doing is very simple and understandable, and therefore it's really very composable. Yeah. And this is extremely late breaking news, but did you see this morning there was the new beta of Clojure beta five, I think has sort of added a new, new way to extend protocols via metadata. Had a chance to look at that yet? I saw that in my Twitter feed this morning, but you know it's election day. My Twitter feed is kind of dwarfed <laughs> by you know life and death issues. So, um, so yes, uh, but I was interested in that. I'm kind of yeah, this kind of brings up what is the use case for introducing this? You get the feeling there's something that uh, the um, Cognitect and the the, the atomic team needed or wanted. And so it shows up, but it's, it's, it is a little frustrating. We don't know the process by which new things get added. They just sort of appear. Yeah. Fairly late in the cycle of, of what should be a fairly cut dried release. Yeah. I, I guess I'm, I'm assuming it's going to sort of, you know, we'll get some explanation maybe at the conj or maybe it'll just sort of stay in a sort of alpha, alpha state and then more information will come out after the release maybe i yeah it's I, I don't have a good good idea but but what a the the new feature just to kind of explain for people who may not have seen it yet is that you can now add metadata to vars and other things so you don't need to define a whole def record just to add the component lifecycle to uh something which may not necessarily need need the def record stuff added to it uh, if it's just some some simple data again I'm, I'm still kind of figuring out how you'd actually use this for component but i've definitely felt that pain sometimes of needing to create def records where it's kind of i want some life cycle stuff here but don't really want to have to create this this whole extra record for it so yeah it'd be interesting to see again yeah i'm curious to see what the intended use is because for me the cost of doing a def record or reify is pretty minimal and then i know exactly what i have um the idea of just slopping a few extra fully qualified keys into the metadata of a map or a var or something and then being able to invoke protocol methods on it is is cool but it doesn't seem to really fit my understanding of the rest of the philosophy of of closure, which is you know a lot of principle of least surprise and building, th- you know, as I'm talking, I'm also hearing the devil's advocate talking about data, data, data. You know that the records and the types are not data in such in the same way that a map and a metadata on that map is data. So uh, I think we need to sit on the sidelines and and see what this turns into. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, so another piece of core machinery that you're using is Pedestal. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about the, the Pedestal web server and you know, your, your thoughts and experiences with that? Yeah, uh, the majority of our stack is is based on Pedestal. And, and we do that for a couple of reasons. One of which is, in some cases, we, we really like the idea that we can do these sort of asynchronous portions of our processing. So, you know, we might want to go a little bit asynchronous, say, in the middle of a pedestal request pipeline uh, because we need to talk to some external system. And rather than have a whole thread block for that, uh, we can leverage the asynchronous aspects of pedestal um, and, and sort of maximize our throughput that way. I can particularly like pedestal because I really actually like the, the routing that's available in Pedestal, the the third iteration of routing, the table-based. That actually works really well. I find that quite readable. Again, principle of least surprise. Uh, you know, it's finally at the point where what you see is exactly what it does, which uh, is appealing to me. But because it's still data, it's very easy to um, 
bring together different bits and pieces of routes from different parts of your program and mix them into one sort of mega route. And we, you know, we actually do that in our servers where primarily we have certain routing that is related to GraphQL, but we have a few other things on the side that don't fit into GraphQL, like a status endpoint or maybe a couple of other things. And it's very easy to build all that up. And again, Pedestal's main claim to fame is the interceptor pipeline model. And, and we like that so much that we actually have an internal library that we may open source at one point where we uh, use the interceptors um, straight out of Pedestal, but we use them on the outgoing side. So it's effectively layers of interceptors that eventually result in a request being sent out as opposed to being coming in and being processed. Yeah. In fact, I'm, I'm working on a kind of um, circuit breaker interceptor right now that we may start using uh, in those pipelines. Right. So this is for requests to other internal services. Right. We want to start you know, acting on, on some of those good design patterns. Oh, did I just say design patterns? Wait a second. It's like good strategies. They're really good strategies and uh, tactical engagements that we can do based on, um, on the release it book, for instance, uh, which goes into a lot of detail about the desire to have you know, bulkheads and circuit breakers and other things sitting between your systems and other systems. So that's something I'm interested in, in, in pursuing. Uh, and also the interceptor model inside Pedestal is actually really good in terms of what we're doing with Licinia and Pedestal, where we've taken the process of a request comes in and then eventually it's fed into the Licinia API to be evaluated, and executed. But we want to have an easy way to inject authentication or caching or a bunch of really odd things that we, we have to do. And what's nice is that our Licinia pedestal library can just give you back a standard set of the interceptors for that pipeline. And then you can just sort of poke into that and add your own stuff in between the established pieces. And that makes it very customizable in a very consistent way. Nice. And just works nicely inside pedestal. Pedestal doesn't have to care what's in the interceptor pipeline. It just goes one interceptor at a time and does the work. Great. So uh, do you want to, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about Licinia. I think that's probably the most, uh, one of the biggest projects uh, that Walmart's been putting out. But before we dive into Licinia, can you just give people who may not be familiar with GraphQL just an overview of the what it is, what problems it's trying to solve? Sure. So GraphQL is a kind of, uh, it's an emerging standard uh, that came out of Facebook. And they were posed with this problem that if you look at a Facebook page, there's lots of data on any given page, you know, information about uh, the current person who's logged in and maybe some of their uh, threads of discussion and alerts that are coming in and other people, their friends list. It's a big graph of data. And if you look at that, getting that data from the traditional REST standpoint approach, that's lots of parallel requests that have to fire. You know, get me some user data. Okay, for those users, go get me friends and go get me alerts and go get me messages and go get me favorites and likes and all that stuff. And that just doesn't really scale complexity-wise. You're, 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 you're just having to send a lot of requests. So they sort of like inverted and said, how about if we send up instead of a very simple URL that sort of maps directly to a resource in the REST way, we set up more of a description of what data we want to get. And the server will figure out how to get that and package it all up into one big bundle and send it down. And then the client gets all the data it needs, no more and importantly, no less, um, all at once and can 
keep the user interface on the client side up to date and happy. And that's really nice because that's the exact kind of thing that I've been struggling with building RESTful services, uh, again, at Aviso and in other places where it worked great for a sample, like, oh, I want the user and the user has a name and an email address. But when you started talking about anything that involved a graph of data, there was never like a clear way to organize that in a, in a RESTful way, especially when it came time to do updates. So GraphQL addresses this well. It has a query language that's kind of looks kind of like JSON and kind of behaves a, not quite like SQL, but it's kind of in the same idea. You describe what you want in your document, and then there's code on the server that figures out how to make that happen, and it all gets packaged up in a uniform way and gets shipped down to the client. And importantly, the graph part is, yes, if you're going from one entity, following relationships to another entity as far as you want, that's very easy to express in GraphQL because it has a simple type system that actually models those entities and those relationships. Nice. Uh, and so that, so the GraphQL is relatively new. And so what, what was it existing before GraphQL uh, at Walmart on this receipt project? So yeah, prior to us beginning to go into GraphQL, which was something that was actually in process just before I came on at Walmart in 2015. But prior to that, we had just what you'd expect to have. We had these, you know, JSON over HTTP endpoints with all kinds of um, uh, interesting URLs and a mix of data stored inside the URL or maybe a query parameter or maybe both. Kind of a wild west of different different approaches, all trying to work it out. So it was more traditional and you you you'd ask for data and you get a big blob of data because you didn't know what that client needed, so you had to give everything to them. Um one of the things I like about GraphQL is is that the responses are tailored to the to the query, so you only are sent back exactly what you asked for. But sure, you know, we were building stuff and it wasn't all pedestal, some of the older code was based uh more on ring and uh composure. But it was the same thing, a bunch of endpoints, a bunch of logic, a bunch of kind of ad hoc ways of grabbing the data and packaging it up and sending it down to the client. Exactly what you'd expect. Mm. And so GraphQL kind of creates one way for all of this stuff to be returned and uh, for, for mutating requests to be sent. Uh, has that felt limiting at times? Are there patterns or places where you're using GraphQL where it it would feel much easier to to do stuff if you had a more standard REST architecture, or has that not really come up? I, I think there's a little bit of personal taste with with that question. I think if you start with a blank slate and are like, okay, I need to create, say, a, a status uh, endpoint that reports status for me, to do that in GraphQL is obviously overkill. You know, that's that that would be a little bit silly because you'd have to do all the work of setting up a simple one-off endpoint and then slap GraphQL into it. And yeah, that makes no sense whatsoever. On the other hand, if you have an established GraphQL schema that you're already exposing, it is monumentally easy to add new features to it, new query operations, new types of data. Uh, it's very easy to take what you have and introduce novelty into it. You know, new fields, new enumerated types, new operations, and do it with a level of confidence that's that's wonderful. That you know, by introducing novelty, you're not going to break anything for an existing client because the existing client asks for what they want and gets only that back. 
So it's never a question of what they will do if they get back a key they didn't ask for because you've introduced it because they'll never get back anything they don't ask for. So that confidence is actually really nice. Plus all the other you know scaffolding and error checking and other things that happen inside GraphQL. So again, if you're starting from scratch and your needs are modest, you know a simple ring request pipeline for a couple of endpoints is easy. But as soon as you have anything detailed and as soon as you're talking about real data that has relationships between it, the GraphQL stuff is much easier. And uh, uh, yeah, I, when I need to implement something, I really am saying, is there a reason why I can't do this in GraphQL? Because I would prefer to. Nice. And so do you end up having, is there sort of one GraphQL domain where everything is sort of part of the same graph? different nodes on the same graph or do you find that when you're modeling it it's easier to sometimes split things out on different endpoints and say well this stuff is sufficiently different or it's so separated in the business logic at walmart that we should just make it a separate graphql uh, does that ever come up or is that not really an issue um our graphql schema is fairly large because the data that we're modeling is quite large as I mentioned before, we're sort of modeling data that looks in one form because it's a receipt that came in from a store. And then we're modeling a completely different set of data that is an online order that came in through the web uh, client. So we're trying to mix all that stuff together, which, by the way, GraphQL actually addresses that particular use case quite nicely. Uh, the idea they have mixed together two different types of data that are not compatible. They don't really share anything, but they can both appear. That's called a union type, and it's, it's, it's a handy feature of GraphQL. I think there's definitely a, a learning process that we've been going through about how to expose the features that we want in GraphQL. The data is there, and having this one great big schema to represent our data works perfectly fine. Where we're having some issues where we're, where we're learning and iterating is how to add features that aren't directly about the data. Things like, how do you paginate results if you're asking for like a customer's history that could be thousands of orders over many years? Mm -hmm. you know, that's not something that GraphQL does directly. That's something that you add to your schema. Uh, you add that as arguments on your fields uh, to talk about that. And we have other related things. Um, searching. You know, One of our features that we support is that you're looking at your phone and you don't remember when you ordered those Legos. So you do a search on Lego and it shows you just the receipts where you bought Legos. Well, we have to talk to a bunch of different systems internally to make that happen. That's fine. And the question is, how's the best way to represent you know, that exact operation? Where do you put that search term in your incoming GraphQL query from the client? And the danger that we've seen is that you start ending up with one particular field that ends up doing absolutely everything. And that's kind of the pattern we've been following. And if we could start from scratch knowing what we know today, we might have gone down a slightly different path along those lines. Yeah. So it seems like uh, you know, GraphQL is is relatively young compared to sort of more rest rest-based architectures and it's it's changing quite a lot. So uh, do you find there's sort of good resources in the in the community, you know, both within you know, your listener users and also the wider GraphQL community to understand these problems and sort of find different ways to to, to model them and address them. I think um, I think the base level of GraphQL documentation is really quite good. If you if you go to GraphQL.org, they actually have both some very good live tutorials 
that tell you the basics of of the type system and and how queries and, and mutations and all that work. They do a really good job of that. And they also have a very readable spec. So the spec is very easy to read, very easy to, to properly implement. And lastly, you know, they have the reference implementation, which is in JavaScript. Mm-hmm. So for the nuts and bolts of what GraphQL is and how it works, yeah, there's lots of good resources for that. It's, it's, I think it's popular for a reason. But the issues we were talking about, the sort of higher level issues, that's something that we're feeling like we're a little bit on the bleeding edge. We don't quite know the, the exact best way to deal with uh, some of these things in a way that's going to continue to be scalable in the future. You know, I, I look at our combined transactions field and I'm like, can we put any more arguments on that one field? <laughs> and if we can't, what's, what's our alternative? Interesting. Uh, and so GraphQL, uh, you know, it's certainly not a, a static spec. It seems like there's sort of interesting stuff coming down down the pipe all the time. Uh, so what's kind of some new new stuff that's uh, been added to GraphQL recently that people may not, may not have heard of yet or stuff that's on the horizon? I think there's a lot of cool things that came in the, the June 2018 version of the spec. And we've been busy implementing as much of that as possible uh, in, in uh, Licinia. One part is they finally nailed down the um, schema definition language. So they had had sort of what they called an ad hoc language for describing the schema, but it wasn't officially part of the spec. It was kind of an example. And they've now codified that and provided a grammar for that. So now it's very well understood exactly what that looks like. Now, Licinia has always operated starting from an Eden document. That was in a structure that was convenient for us. Though somewhere in the last few releases, we added the ability to parse one of these um, schema definition language documents into that Eden format, and then you pipe it through in the schema compiler to make it executable. Right. So, so that's one of the things is now there's this definition language that which is kind of cool because as a closure team, we can't share our Eden document to non-closure teams and have them have any idea what it does. But if we all start by defining it in the schema definition language, you know, then we're in a much better place. And now it's completely the same from Licinia's point of view, whether it starts as Eden or starts as the interface definition language. So so that's one good thing that's in the spec. And also in the spec, uh, something that was added was support for directives. Directives in closure terms, it's just metadata. So there's persistent metadata on pretty much anything you can put in a query or in the in your schema. And so I've recently, like the current release of Licinia, now lets you parse that if it comes in the interface definition language. We added all the necessary grammar to parse those directives, and eventually we'll figure out the right way to expose those directives to uh, the application. So you can see what they are, and they'll also be the necessary validations and so forth. So, you know, just as there is a lot of really cool use cases in the closure world for using metadata, but you don't use it every day, I think there's going to be a lot of really compelling uses for directives inside GraphQL, but you won't use it every day. Nice. And so one of the one of the features which looks extremely attractive is GraphQL subscriptions, where you can subscribe to some data and then get pushed uh, updates to to the server that's you know historically been a very difficult ad hoc problem that people have needed to solve in in one off ways often uh, when they're doing doing this kind of uh, feature so can you talk a little bit about subscriptions how they're used how they work you know in Licinia or you know what the status of them there is 
Absolutely. So in Licinia, a subscription is sort of a constrained version of a query. So normally you send up a query and you'll get back a response that has the data you requested um, in your query document and you're done. So it's just a typical synchronous HTTP request and response. Subscriptions is pretty much the same thing with a bunch of provisos. First of all, it's established over a WebSocket. And second, the server side has control to send not just one response, but to keep sending that data back down. So a typical example from tutorials and things is you're building a chat application. So you might subscribe to a chat topic and then ask for things like, you know, every time something is spoken in that chat room, send me a piece of data with what was said and who said it. And so on your client side, via the WebSocket, you'll just keep getting pinged asynchronously with each additional bit of data as it comes in live. Now, you know, maybe it's not that, maybe it's something else like, um, you know, a stock ticker or whatever other real-time event you can think of. But you get to use the exact same semantics that you do for a traditional query, but you're doing it for the subscription query. And the only difference is that instead of getting one response, you'll just get a series of them, which is really, again, very nice. The consistency of that means that you don't have your application on the client side being built in two different ways, depending on whether it's you know, the traditional way or the subscription way. It all works the same. And what we did for Licinia is we looked at uh, the Apollo client, which is a JavaScript client with a matching JavaScript node server built on top of the reference implementation. And we tried to make Pedestal just duplicate the semantics there because the Apollo implementation filled in a couple of details that were left as an exercise to the reader by the spec. And so we just tried to, as closely as we could, duplicate those extras. Nice. Do you think that's going to become more uh, specified over time? Or why was there sort of some ambiguity or bits left out? Do you know? I think the, the GraphQL spec is very careful to not sort of pencil itself into a corner. For instance, you know, I say GraphQL comes up, JSON goes down, but it doesn't say in the GraphQL spec that you can only serve up JSON, for example. It talks about JSON because it's convenient to talk about but it's very clear and very explicit that that's only one possible way of uh, building response. And depending on your particular domain, you might want to build something else like uh, protobuf or uh, some other more compact representation, you know, uh, or some other more more. Uh, you might want to use Eden if you have ClojureScript on the on the client side because then you have richer data and certain things like dates and things will transfer over nicely. So. So just as the GraphQL spec wasn't overly specific about the over-the-wire format, it isn't overly specific about some of the semantics of how you do a subscription because the details about, about it could end up being application-specific. You know, Particularly how to handle cases like, well, what if the connection between the client and the server goes down? Uh, what is the correct way to uh, reconnect and, and pick that stream back up? You know, if the spec mandated one and only one way to do that, that may not be so good. So I like that Apollo sort of came up with their own gloss on top of it that uh, it filled in details of like that, how, uh, how you do subscriptions, how you manage multiple subscriptions at the same time, how the client starts and stops a subscription, how the server can communicate that a subscription has ended versus an arbitrary failure on the server side. All those things 
I think would be over-specified if they were part of the spec, but they're perfectly good as a particular implementation of the spec. Nice. Uh, so traditional REST endpoints are quite you know, relatively easy to to secure because you can have you know specific security rules for every endpoint. But with GraphQL, you've kind of got you know a very large unbounded you know that the queries could be arbitrary. I, th- I think at least commonly they they seem to be they could be arbitrary. So how how does authentication work? Where you might want to restrict sort of how someone traverses the graph from their products into places they shouldn't be able to query. Yeah, authentication is, is certainly a challenge, as is as caching uh, with GraphQL, because as you say, everything is going through one endpoint, and then what can be expressed in that endpoint is pretty unbounded. In our case, we definitely do some authentication at a granular level of, of uh, different operations. So we have an interceptor that fits into our uh, pedestal pipeline that is able to identify who the user is and what operations are granted to that user. And these are the, the operations in the GraphQL document and the schema. So that's our high granularity level. So if uh, you know it's a customer that um, should only have access to online orders, then we can actually do that. We can say you only get to see the online order endpoints. If you try to access any of the other operations, we can just forbid that without even getting GraphQL involved. Uh, so that's, that's cool. At, at a deeper level, I could see, and we don't really have this issue in our schema, that you might have particular data within the schema that needs to be protected, made not visible to certain customers or whatever. And the nice thing about GraphQL is it's really just you know a contract. It's just, hey, we have this document. We describe how you parse that document and how you interpret that document, but we don't say where the data comes from. Uh, that is all pushed into bits of code you, you supply. Lucini calls those field resolvers. And the field resolvers have access to whatever data they need to decide if and how to act. So if we had some bit of secure data that we wanted to protect, that would just be a field resolver that would have a chance to say, hey, you know, does this user associated with this request have access to this bit of data? And they can supply a null or an error or something along those lines if it was requested and it, and it wasn't appropriate to give it to that particular client. So again, the, the, the takeaway here is that, is that GraphQL gives you the option to implement these things at a very nice granular level if you need to. Great. And so GraphQL came out of Facebook where they have a very naturally a very graphy uh, sort of data model. Everyone's sort of re- related to everyone else and sort of these connections and things and all of these things express quite nicely in a graph data model and i know people are using this in other domains as well so does graphql work just as well in sort of more traditional relational context where you don't have a graph database you've got let's say a sql database or in your case you know a cassandra database where you know you can't do sort of arbitrary sql queries in in cassandra for example how does that that sort of work. And then I guess the, the follow-up question is the potential of N plus one queries where in a naive implementation of this, you could imagine you know, your field resolvers ending up doing quite a lot of point queries because of how how data happens to be resolved. So can you talk about that sort of what the implementation looks like when you're not dealing in such a, a social networking data model? Absolutely. Now, now, certainly one part of this is that our particular data model is really hierarchical. 
you know, you have transactions that are built from receipts and receipts have line items in them. And, you know, that's about as deep as our tree tends to get. And then on the other side, you also have customers have orders and orders also have line items and maybe a few other things. But it's, it's much more hierarchical. It's not so much a graph. And that's perfectly good. So there's no particular reason not to use it just because our data is hierarchical and not a true graph. All the things that we like about GraphQL aren't related to the graph part. It's, it's more about the contract and the implementation and, and all those other details. The M plus one problem, that's a little more tricky. And it comes down to what information you know and when. Now, since we're in Cassandra, we're not too interested in joins because Cassandra doesn't let you do joins. <laughs> so the M plus one problem is not necessarily any less efficient for us <laughs> because we're going to be doing all the queries anyway. Uh, and we're going to try and do them in parallel and do them asynchronously. Uh, but if you were using traditional SQL, yes, that can be an issue. And the thing that we do in Lucinia is the preview API. So inside a field resolver, there's an API that lets you see what fields are going to be selected within the current branch of the GraphQL query. So if you're a user, you can see that your transactions are going to be queried. And you can even see that the transaction ID of the transaction is going to be queried. And you could see whatever information you need along those lines. You have a, a kind of interesting view of what's coming up to be processed. And that means that instead of just querying the user, you could do a query that supplies users with their transactions already loaded so that when GraphQL, when Lucinia gets down to those lower nested fields, that data is already in memory and you've bypassed the M plus one problem. Right. So there isn't a one size fits all solution to this because we don't know where your data is coming from. Is it coming from a database or a database toolkit like Cassandra or some external web service or a mixture of all of the above? But what we can do is give the sort of higher level fields a preview of what's happening lower in the, the query so that they can get that data when it's efficient to do so, and so it's ready when it's needed below. But it doesn't have to always get it, which is less efficient if you're querying data you're never going to use. Nice. So so that's something that's available to the programmers as they're defining these field resolvers. They can sort of take an optimization there if they can see things would be more efficient that way than letting it sort of drop down to each of the, the individual ones below. Absolutely. And and we do stuff like that in, in our code. We're not suffering from the M plus one problem, but what we do have is this idea that some of our data comes from different places. So we might store raw line items data in our receipts with you know UPCs and maybe the name of the item off the receipt. What we don't have is the thumbnail image URL <laughs> for that item. We have to go to a separate system to get that data. Now, if the client doesn't need it, we don't want to do that operation. We don't want to blindly go out and get product URL information for every UPC on every line item on every receipt that we serve up through our GraphQL service. So when we're collecting that receipt data at sort of a higher level, we can look down and say, oh, are they asking for the product URL? And if that's the case, then we can pass it through some code that goes and collects that data and sort of gloms it onto the, to the maps, the receipt and the line item maps, get that extra data. If it's not being queried, we skip that step and we save ourselves a bit of time and effort. Nice. So 
And of course, that's one of the nice things about GraphQL is it doesn't care where the data comes from. It's sort of this uniform way of talking about data, whether it comes from a database or a web service or, you know, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, you just have to create your schema and <laughs> provide the code that actually gets the data. Nice. So I, I've I've been asking these questions. Uh, not I, I realize I may have come across a little bit a little bit critical, but I'm not, I'm not being sort of critical because I don't like the idea. I'm actually extremely interested in GraphQL and have been looking at it quite closely, which is why I've sort of got all these sort of questions on my mind of how how things uh, work in practice. So so that's been that's been really good to kind of get the inside scoop on that. Yeah. And, and in some ways, you know, GraphQL is interesting in just the same way that Clojure is interesting in that it's a few basic, simple ideas that are iterated upon to build up better ideas and then iterated on to build up even better ideas. You know, Clojure has its emphasis on data. So does GraphQL. Clojure has the idea that pretty much everything can look like a method of, you know, a function call. And, um, GraphQL has this idea that everything can just look like a field on top of some other object. And strangely, those two ideas actually kind of gel together and, and, and makes doing GraphQL enclosure very pleasant. Yeah, I was, I was wondering how those two, you know, as there becomes quite easy to express GraphQL's ideas with, with closure code, uh, it sounds like. It, it absolutely does. I mean, you have a field, and if you're grabbing transactions, then it's just go to your database and get those transactions and, and return that list of transactions. And then that's just maps of data in memory. And the field resolvers at the next level down will start pulling apart each one of those to get things like a date or a total or a TC number or whatever your domain is. Um, but it ends up being you know very low impedance. Everything just fits together quite nicely because fields in the GraphQL world look like keys in a map in the closure world. Great. And there just isn't that much work to be done. Again, because because closure is so open about data, it makes things very easy. Hmm. And the other thing that uh, GraphQL and Clojure have is is uh, the lack of symmetry that you have in REST. So a big problem with REST is the idea that if you can get it, you can put it. <laughs> you know, I'll get a user and I'll make some changes, and then I'll post that user back where I got it, and it's supposed to propagate those changes back out to whatever the underlying data store is. And if you've ever actually tried to do that, you end up hitting a host of problems, especially when that data you're talking about is part of a graph. You know, do we get rid of stuff we don't reference? Do we ignore it? You know, what if some fields are synthetic or are read-only and you've changed them? You know, uh, how do we apply all these different changes? It seems so wide open. You're often trying to sort of reverse engineer the use case from the particular set of properties that are supplied and changed when you do that post. Now, GraphQL, kind of like Clojure, sets that, uh, inverts that. You know, in Clojure, you have one method of reading data from a structure and a different method for changing data in a structure. And of course, it's immutable, so you just get a new one, but it's the same thing. GraphQL has query operations, but then it has mutations. And so instead of saying anything you can read, you can change, you're then slotted instead into this idea that there are specific use cases for what you can change, and we just iterate and expose each of those. And you don't provide an entire object of data 
and let the server sort out what you intended to do will actually give what you intend to do a specific name and provide a spot for you to provide the specific data that's needed for that operation and then let the code on the server do its job. Yeah, that's very um, very useful. I've, I've certainly had challenging, you know, especially with a, a very rich domain model where you're getting a, a post of some data and then you need to... <laughs> You need to figure out what did the client intend to be telling you when they gave you back all this data, what changed, what business rules do I need to apply based on these particular changes, but not these changes and stuff. So that's, that sounds extremely useful. And we definitely see that, that we have you know a handful of mutation cases uh, in our particular domain, but only a handful. And then we basically have a few generic uh, query operations where we start at a customer and work down to their transactions and orders and whatnot. Um, so we see that symmetry that a, a few types of queries are great, and then a very finite number of mutations are great too. And we don't have to be just open to any possible change anyone might ever make for whatever reason. Because like you said, you, you, you're you working back to the intent. We start with the intent in GraphQL. The intent is the mutation. Nice. Is there anything else uh, in, in the GraphQL listener stuff that we should discuss or know about? Yeah, we were talking about things that don't fit perfectly with GraphQL. And the biggest sore point that we've had is just things that really call out for a file upload. File upload, uh, or for that matter, file download in GraphQL are fundamentally not, uh, not compatible. You know, you're trying to post up some JSON and there's no place to slot a, fi- <laughs> a file when you're uh, <laughs> posting a JSON query. So, um, that's that's one of the cases where you really want to uh, avoid using uh, GraphQL. But again, how often do we do that? Not not so often, I think. Another area that I, I find particularly intriguing and something that we're spearheading inside Walmart now and we'll open source into the Lucini pedestal later is server stored queries. So one of the downsides of GraphQL, especially from the point of view of a mobile client, is that you're sending this query document up to the server to be parsed and executed. And in some cases, we definitely see large documents, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of bytes, thousands of characters coming up from the client. And on the client, sometimes we're seeing them, you know, do a bunch of string bashing to build that query and then send it up to us. And you got to ask why we have thousands of identical, millions of identical phones uh, bashing strings together to send that exact same (laughs) string up over the wire. And of course, you know, that's the worst bandwidth for a mobile device is uploads. Downloads can be pretty quick now, but uploads always lag. Uh, Why do we do it that way? And one of the nice things about the spec is it has this division between the query and the query document. So a GraphQL query can be a document that has placeholders and variables that you define. And then a request from a client can supply the query, but can also supply the variables. So instead of string bashing on the client, we're putting those variables, plugging them in on the server side. And once you have that concept, suddenly you don't need to upload the actual document. If that document was stored on the server with a well-known name, you could just pass up the name of the document and the variables. And that's great uh, because... It is going to be a bit more efficient on the server side by a millisecond, two milliseconds that it takes to parse that document. But it also means that we'll know 
what kind of queries our, our clients are using because they'll actually be stored on the server. We'll be able to take a look at them. And the clients will be sending less data to us. They'll be sending up just the name of the document and the variables that get plugged into it. So I think there's a huge upside there. We'll know eventually if it's as big as I hope it is. You know, I just see it as a win on two sides. One, it's more efficient because you're sending less data over your worst bandwidth part of the connection. And second, there's more control on the server side because we actually can see exactly what kind of queries we're getting without any guesswork. Right. So those uh, server-stored queries sound like they would end up looking a little bit like the mutations that the clients could send. Is it, do I have that right? Uh, no. Um, oh. <laughs> no, you've got it wrong. <laughs> Dead wrong. Are you even listening to me? No. Um, the, the query that comes up is not limited to being a query or a mutation. Subscription may be a special case. The point is, is that we normally process a document that's a big string in the GraphQL query language. And all we're saying is, instead of passing that up over the wire, we do everything else exactly the same, whether it's a query or a mutation, we do everything exactly the same, except we just pass up the name of this document that we have stored somewhere in a database on the server side. Right. Okay. So yeah, sometimes it's going to be a query that we're invoking, and sometimes it's going to be a mutation, uh-huh. which are actually quite similar inside um, inside GraphQL. Um, but the, the main point is, is that we're sending less stuff up and getting the same results. Gotcha. Last week we had uh, Hannah Henderson on from CircleCI and she was talking a little bit about GraphQL. They use GraphQL there at CircleCI and backwards compatibility uh, seems to be sort of accounted for in the spec that you know you can mark fields as deprecated. But how have you had to make backwards incompatible changes? How, how does that side of things work? Yeah, backwards compatibility is, is certainly a challenge. GraphQL gives you certain advantages that I, I mentioned earlier. That's basically predicated on the idea that the client will only see exactly what they ask for. So if you introduce some novelty, you introduce new fields or new types or new operations, the client simply, old clients simply can't ask for those and they'll never see them. So that's terrific. We've definitely had some issues on our side where things uh, we've made mistakes and we've had to sort of hack around it a little bit. So partly because we were learning as we were going and partly because the GraphQL spec was evolving as we were trying to implement it, all the typical things that happen on, on the bleeding edge. So we occasionally have a field and we'll deprecate it and then replace it with a similarly named, though usually less ideally named field <laughs> that actually does what we want. I think we have a field now that was supposedly like the price of an item, but we made a mistake and it was supposed to be the price in pennies, but we instead just divided by a hundred and <laughs> and rounded down. And so that number is just useless. <laughs> so, so we had to introduce a new field that uh, replaced it with what we originally intended. And we keep the old field around, not because we want anyone to use it, but because we don't want older clients that ask for it to blow up because we took it away, even though we're hoping no one's actually using it because they'll get the wrong uh, information up inside the inside the client if they do. Yeah. So deprecation is, is good for that. But yeah, uh, again, you just don't want to get rid of anything because you know we've got millions of phones walking around with the Walmart app on it. And if we remove something, there's going to be a percentage, especially on the Android side, where, you know, those 
clients are going to be useless because they're going to fail out with GraphQL parse errors because we've taken away something that existed sometime in the past. So no, we never delete anything. Right. And I guess that's that's sort of similar to some of the stuff that's been discussed in the closure community with Rich's growing and shrinking and breaking stuff. Yes, we all love our words. And uh, novelty is, is a very nice one that I didn't really start using till Rich started using it. And I guess one of the advantages of this sort of uh, where people are very specific about what they query for is that you could, I guess, add some logging in the field resolvers to see exactly who's still querying for for this old field and know when know when it's finally not being used or at least have information about where those requests are coming from. Uh, I guess does that does that work in practice or? It does work in practice. In fact, we have uh, a little a way of taking a query and reducing it just to the names of the fields that you query. So it's kind of like the signature of the query. We've extracted out things like directives and field arguments and so forth, and we're just talking about what fields are involved in the query. So that gives us an idea of what fields are actually still being used. So we can get that information back out of um, Splunk, which is our log aggregator, and start seeing what queries people are using and work from there to what the queries actually look like. And then getting back to this idea of server-stored queries, if we eventually get to the point where we only support server-stored queries, then we can truly know exactly what our existing client base is using, and we'll know the consequences of removing a field. You'll know, be able to see if anyone actually uses that field because we'll actually have the queries on the server mm. that could potentially reference a field we'd like to remove. So moving towards server-stored queries will give us the ability to actually delete things in theory. So if you were to start again fresh, you had all of your Lucinia infrastructure in place, but you got to you know, get rid of all of the old clients and just start from scratch, would you only allow server-stored queries given kind of what you know now, or is there enough benefit? To clients being able to define them without your involvement that that it's i i right now still consider server stored queries a nice thing to add i don't think i quite want to be at the point where we only support server stored queries because that's going to slow down the client side developers you know they're the ones building these queries we expose the schema they build the queries mm-hmm. i wouldn't want them to get into a thing where they have to like open a ticket with us <laughs> to get a query loaded in now to be honest what we've built so far is more self service which is cool but it's still going to slow them down i could eventually imagine uh, a point where our qa servers allowed the current style you know ad hoc queries and our production servers only allowed server stored queries but first i want to get our client developers, many of whom sit in the seats around me here in, in Portland, I want to get them um, interested in using server-side, server-stored queries first before we mandate that they have to use them. Right. And if it turns out that if it turns out that my analysis is wrong, well, okay, doesn't hurt anybody. We'll just take that stuff out. Nice. So I haven't had the chance to use uh, any listening code yet, but uh, one of the things that I have used from Walmart Labs is VizDeps. Um, I found it extremely helpful uh, for tracking down sort of conflicting dependencies. So do you want to talk a little bit about uh, VizDeps and maybe sort of why, what the problems were that you were trying to trying to solve there? Sure. Um, so VizDeps is the physical manifestation of one of my many anxieties and neuroses, <laughs> which is the dread fear that what I think we're using as a dependency isn't what we're actually using in production. 
And this was kind of something that hit me from day one because our code is actually a very large Linogen multi-project. And we've gone through a couple of iterations of how we keep all of them organized um, so that we're using at least basically the same versions. Yeah, because it's just appalling to me the idea that, oh, maybe I fixed a bug by changing the version of Pedestal, but it turned out that due to Linogen build reasons, that isn't the version that's actually put in the Uber jar that we deploy in production. Oops, not keen on that. Now, again, um, in my mind, I think the problem looms larger than it is in reality. You, you kind of know when things are broken very quickly. <laughs> um, but still, uh, I have this idea that there should be one and only one version of any dependency. Now, the problem we have is that we're bringing in you know, Netty and Jetty and Pedestal and uh, tons of other things, Lacinia, Core Async, um, tons and tons of libraries. Our dependencies get fairly large. And if you try to read like line depths, uh, it's, it's just not readable. And it doesn't give you an idea of what was going on, what you were trying to accomplish versus what Linogen provided for you. So that's where VizDeps comes in. It's, um, I think uh, at one point, Fogus was on our team here, which was awesome. And he sort of uh, jogged me with uh, GraphViz. He was uh, very happy with, with using GraphViz to do all kinds of ad hoc design diagrams. So GraphViz is a, is a language for creating uh, directed graphs, and it takes care of all of the layout issues for you. So you're not getting distracted with making the, the arrows line up perfectly, you know. Everyone is kind of used to graph is documents being kind of wonky, but totally usable. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so graph is, is, is pretty cool. And so when I learned that language and, I, and I, I saw this problem with dependencies, how do I visualize these dependencies? And the two things just mesh together. So I had to do a lot of digging around inside Linogen to understand how it builds up the class path with adding and removing profiles and, and that type of thing. It, it took a bit of work. It's probably not quite perfect. But the end result is you get to see all your dependencies. And then what I immediately saw was, and because you get to see all your dependencies, you've now totally overwhelmed GraphViz's ability to lay out the page because you have so many dependencies. Even a, a small one of our projects will have 50, 60, 100 uh, jar files all interconnected. So that's why I added the ability to focus based on the name of a particular dependency. You know, I'm checking everything pedestal related. If it's not, if it's not pedestal, kind of cull it out of the graph. And then more importantly, the prune feature, which just keeps dependency conflicts in the graph. And that's really where you get a, a big advantage over the text-based version because you have in the GraphViz diagram, you see the version that was sort of requested as a dependency versus the version that was resolved based on other dependencies or other whatnot inside your Linogen build. And that's really useful. Because you get to see, oh, I was, you know, this code was looking for 2.1.0, but it got 3.4.0. That's probably compatible. Okay, you know, panic averted. And what you don't want to see is the opposite version where something asks for version two and gets version one. Then you know you're going to be hitting a problem. Yeah. And the other the other part that I really like about this is it shows you those, you kind of cover this a little bit, but line depths tree will list the conflict at the top, but the tree that it shows you only shows you the final resolutions it doesn't show you sort of the the dependencies between or who asked for which versions and so you've kind of got to infer that but with visdeps it just kind of shows you the the graph of who requested what and which one won and all of those 
very useful things to know. Absolutely. Yeah. That stuff is, is just very useful for me. I use it a lot of the time when, especially if things go a little wonky, one of the first things I do is run VizDeps with Prune and see if something weird is going on with my dependencies. Yeah, I've, I've definitely had it uh, help resolve quite a few Netty-based dependency conflicts, um, or Jackson, those two tend to be oh yeah <laughs> yeah certain certain uh, certain dependencies just keep coming up don't they because everyone's on a slightly different version of them yeah but yeah and there's sort of a little bit of some philosophy in there about part of the value about what VizDepth does isn't the information it shows you it's the information it knows it can omit like i said like pruning it down just to show you the conflicts versus showing you everything because uh, i think I'm, if you've seen my twitter feed every once in a while i'll, I'll publish like what graph is generates for one of our projects and it's just lines and boxes and completely illegible because we're <laughs> just too much. Yeah. So being able to prune that down is is really important. And that shows up in IOVSO pretty as well, where I go to some effort to to prune out stack frames that aren't going to provide you with any value and are just going to make it harder for you to figure out what broke. Yes. Yes, that's another extremely useful tool that I'm you know, very happy with. So the other other Walmart Labs project uh, that I'm I know you use it I I might be forgetting I don't think you've created it but uh, Joker um, is something that is used quite a lot uh, at Walmart Labs uh, so do you want to talk about what what Joker is how you use it um, kind of why why it works better than other ways you could do the same uh, solve the same problems absolutely so uh, Joker was created by Roman uh, who's who's on our team obviously so. Um, I don't understand how he does this kind of thing because we have kids about the same age. I do not have time to program <laughs> at home. <laughs> anyway, so um, yeah, he he uh, did a really great job. He said, you know, I would like to be using Clojure instead of Bash or Python or, or Ruby uh, to do some of the common scripting things we want to do. And for us, a lot of that is things like, oh, talking to our deployment systems to get status on servers and triggering scripts and even I think uh, we're using Joker as an intermediate web server in our notification pipeline. He set up with this idea of what can I accomplish that's reasonable? You know, something that looks like closure, implements enough of it to be usable for scripting and is super fast. And he didn't set out to recreate closure. He didn't set out to, for instance, do the same kind of interop with Go that closure has with Java. Um, you just don't have that in, in Joker. It's, it's a much more finite set of capabilities. But what he did accomplish was something that looks like closure, acts like closure, but starts up really fast, like sub-millisecond time to start up. Nice. And because of that, you don't have if, – if you compare it to uh, some of the other projects out there like Plank and – oh, you're going to have to jog my memory here. This is embarrassing. Lumo. Lumo, yes. So I played around with Lumo a bit. I don't think I played with Plank. The startup time was good, but not great when you compare it to the startup time of Ruby or Python or Joker. And you could do more with Lumo because you had access to all of the, the Node.js APIs. But still, for what we're using it for, which is basically reading and writing Eden files and uh, accessing URLs and a few other basic things, uh, yeah, Joker definitely does the job. And the other thing that does really well is it acts as a linter for closure and closure script code. So that's actually built right into our build pipeline is uh, when we're 
reviewing a PR, we we let Joker loose on it, and we we can't uh, merge the build unless Joker is happy. Nice. So you've written some sort of style rules that Joker is able to pass and evaluate. What does that look like? Uh, yeah. Yes. So yeah. So Joker is just built right into Joker. Uh, those rules are, are oh. just literally part of the Joker implementation. So it looks for things like namespaces that you require but never use, and you know I can't remember the full list of everything it does, but um, it definitely kind of, the most common thing we have is as code changes, uh, the namespaces that you require and the classes you import get outdated you know, become a little stale and it catches that. And then you have to go back in and delete those things and resubmit the PR. Nice. That's, that seems very useful. Yeah. I wish I had um, brought up the list of all the other things Joker does. It, it's doing quite a few useful checks beyond those. I just can't uh, enumerate them. <sighs> nice. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing that I've been very interested in looking at more. And I guess the something that maybe Joker would be useful or suitable for is creating a fast formatter for closure code because there's there are some formatters around but they are you know closure based so you, you have to deal with the closure startup time and other you know there's some other issues there so having something super fast that you can run and reformat closure code to fit a standard layout seems like it would be quite useful I'm not sure it's any other languages like go and rust and elm have have these formatters and people seem to like them, so I'm quite keen to to see that enclosure. Yes, in our uh, in our group we have a narrow edge of Emacs developers in the majority, so that is our style guide. And again, part of our PR is it checks to make sure that any code that changed is formatted the way Emacs would, <laughs> and it actually uses Emacs uses Emacs in headless mode to do that. <laughs> yeah. And so you've got some other cursive users then, I'm guessing? Uh, yes, yes. I'm kind of patient zero for cursive. And um, I think one or two of the other people on the team use cursive. Um, interestingly, Roman, who wrote Joker, I don't think he uses an IDE at all. I think he uses either Adam or I think Adam. And uh, we've been looking at uh, Visual Studio Code and uh, Calva as well. Mm-hmm. But I tend to stick to cursive. It's very familiar to me at this point. And um, generally, my take on closure is everything in closure is easy right up until it isn't. And when it isn't, it's usually because something in the Java side of things um, went wrong. And, and you'll get a class cast exception or a knob pointer exception deep in some Java code somewhere. It's really nice to have all the power of IntelliJ that understands Java really well and can just zap you right to that problem. It's just nice to have that for when things do go wrong. Yeah. I imagine especially in sort of a large enterprise, you've probably got quite a few Java dependencies that you're you're pulling in and using directly, maybe? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We pull in all sorts of stuff in Rapid or we're using closure wrappers around other things. I I I suppose it's probably some clever name for for that, but it's just the big ball of mud. <laughs> we're just we're dragging in everything we need, right? So, closure in the enterprise, uh, Walmart is is a pretty big company, and so I'm, I'm interested to hear sort of how how closure fits in to to that sort of environment, which may be a little bit more regular and standardized uh, in, in other places. Uh, yeah, is there anything sort of interesting in the deployment or monitoring? that you do that's that's different from other 
applications or are you moving towards sort of more standardized patterns there? Yeah, in, in terms of the whole pattern, that's been sort of a very much rapidly evolving story since I started here at Walmart in 2015. Uh, so we've gone from deploying on our own VMs to currently we're deploying on uh, a platform as a service system called OneOps. And in the future, we might be doing, say, Kubernetes, which is going to be preferable for me. In terms of the monitoring, we've always done a lot of our own monitoring, and, and traditionally we've used Ryman. So we have our loggers hooked up to send uh, messages to Ryman, and we use Ryman to do analysis and send pages and alerts and, and uh, forward data to different points. We're actually phasing that out right now. Uh, not that we don't like Ryman, but because we're in the enterprise, we kind of have to toe the line and do things kind of the way other people do. So periodically we're told, oh, you'll no longer be able to get through the firewall to such and such a service. You have to go through some system that already exists within Walmart. And that's something we've been doing uh, quite a bit lately. Most of the stuff that we want to do in terms of monitoring uh, is the same for Clojure as it is for Java. So we've got monitoring tools that um, you know ping URLs, ping endpoints inside GraphQL, to establish server health, or sometimes they will use JMX to go analyze how well a system is operating, just as we would any other Java application. We're beginning to use a tool called Dynatrace. So that's sort of um, a goal is for everyone to be onto this one consistent system that will be able to trace requests passing from the edges of Walmart all the way through everything inside Walmart. And that's a little bit more challenging for, I think, the closure stack because the, the tools work as a, as a Java agent, and they make certain assumptions about how a Java application is structured, especially in terms of which particular libraries you use. And as far as I can tell, Clojure is a bit of a puzzle to it. So we may have to do some of our own instrumentation to, to properly participate in the system. That's sort of another evolving story for me right now. Sure. In general, though, uh, we love Clojure, and one of the reasons we love Clojure is to the rest of the world, it just looks like Java. And so sort of most monitoring tools, it's just Java. It doesn't have to know that Clojure is in the mix. Uh, we get all the benefits without paying any particular costs. So uh, what's the perception of Clojure and the, the Clojure teams from outside, from other teams that are doing you know, Java or other more enterprise-y kind of stuff? Do they see Clojure as this sort of weird language and you guys are sort of the, the rebels out in the different offices, or how does that work? Uh, yeah, the perception of closure is kind of uh, a little bit of shock and awe. You know, people come over and they look over my shoulder, and I've got like a split ergo keyboard, and I've remapped all the keys to do all kinds of crazy stuff for me. So, you know, it definitely has sort of a sci fi feel to it. People definitely like make this assumption that we're everyone in the closure team is like this expert theoretical functional programmer and and that really is not the case we're all very pragmatic developers who happen to work in a functional language the use of graphql is great because people again get the benefits of hitting our closure based services and never have to even think about the fact that closure is involved in terms of trying to get other teams to use Clojure, there's a tiny trickle of that of people trying some Clojure things sort of on the side, maybe involving Joker, maybe not. But we're not really seeing a lot of traction from other teams to jump into this pool. It's a bit of an uphill battle when you know everyone is right now is focused on holiday. 
it's like a microcosm of the uh, software development field in general. There is this perception that people using Clojure know something that other people don't, but that isn't quite enough, it seems, to get people to really jump into it. Interesting. So have you adopted spec or schema? And I guess, how do you use that particularly on the boundaries of your systems that talk to other other systems inside Walmart? Yes. So we used uh, schema, prismatic schema. Now it's what, Plumatic or something? Yeah. We used prismatic schema uh, ways back. Um, and we primarily use it uh, to validate that gigantic um, configuration file that we have. So uh, one of our tests feeds that configuration file into a deeply nested prismatic schema uh, that we've generated for that purpose, which is kind of nice to know that all of our data is correct. And then in terms of spec, uh, that's something that's sort of spreading from Licinia out. So Licinia uses spec in a couple of ways, one of which is we always validate the large Eden document that you feed in to the Licinia compiler Mm -hmm. because it's a fairly structured document. And and if you make a mistake there and we don't catch it in some of our ad hoc validations, you'll get strange behavior at runtime that will be hard to relate to your error. So it's kind of nice to have all these things checked for you right at the get-go. So yes, we uh, we definitely use spec there. And I tend to use spec a bit more. If I'm defining a new bit of code, I'll often use spec to describe it. I don't often turn on the validations, maybe occasionally inside part of testing, but it's very nice as a unambiguous way to describe either the input you expect or the output you produce. Again, even if you don't do the validations, just having those spec declarations there, I think is quite, quite useful because I, I find it quite tedious to try and describe in text something that could be described better in code. So I'm quite happy to say, you know, go look at the spec to see what the result is. <laughs> and, um, I may be a little more aggressive on that. I think I've gotten a little pushback from some of the other bit more conservative members of the team <laughs> who only want to see spec there if it serves some vital interest. They may be right. But uh, again, as I said, I'm, I, I work best if I'm moving from one known state to another known state. I have a very low tolerance for ambiguity. So for me, tracking down in spec to describe you know, the inputs or outputs of a particular function or, or subsystem helps me know that I'm in one state and that I'm and where I'm going to go from there. Whereas if it's just a variable called options and I don't really know what the options are, uh, I start to get a little stressed. So I like to to peg that down and spec is a is a very concise way, an unambiguous way to do that. Great. So uh, is there anything else you'd like to uh, mention in closing? Uh, yes, you know we unfortunately just lost one of our development team. Uh, he returned to his prior company to re- to resume his role as CTO. So uh, I believe we will have headcount. So we are going to be looking for another developer for our team. And uh, I have to say, you know, this team is amazing. Uh, everyone I'm working with on this team is, you know, the best and the brightest I've worked with anywhere. So. That may set a high bar, but it's also a really great experience to work here. Nice. And is that uh, position remote, open to U.S. remote, or what's? do you know what that will be? Oh, that yeah. That position would be U.S. remote, but remote is definitely part of the culture of our team. I think we're scattered across the whole U.S. already, uh, the members of our team. So I'm in Portland. We've got people in Philly and South Carolina and San Bruno and... Um, 
we make it work, which which can take some effort to make the remote thing work properly. But we put that effort in. Nice. Uh, well, I really appreciate all of the work that your team is doing, putting out open source closure code. Uh, it's all very useful and battle tested. And I know lots of people, especially are really liking Lashinia. So uh, thanks for that. And I look forward to seeing kind of what, what comes out next. Thanks. I'm looking forward to figuring out what that is too. I've got some interesting things on tap, but uh, I can't talk about them just yet. So um, hopefully we'll have another chat soon. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks very much. It's been great talking with you.